Father, we thank you for your presence in this place today. God, I lift up every person that is sick, that is not with us today. God, I ask that you would heal them and restore them. Lord, bring their body back and begin to allow their bodies to begin to function as you designed their bodies to function. Lord, for every person that is feeling depressed or like an outcast, like they don't belong, Lord, help us to be the one to go out and bring them in. Let us talk to our neighbors and our loved ones. Lord, let us examine our own lives. How many unsaved people are we interacting with and talking about Jesus every day? Not just once a week or once a month or even once a year, but Lord, every day proclaiming the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. Lord, that your kingdom is coming. And they can get on board with the kingdoms of this, of this world or, king, or with the kingdoms of our God and King. Lord, but that message is love. That message is acceptance. That message is change. That message, Lord, is there is hope and forgiveness and redemption found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you, you that you are the God who never changes, and yet you change all the time. We praise you. We thank you for that. That no single tree looks alike, no shrub looks alike, no human looks alike. That, Lord, we are all different. And in that difference, your church, your kingdom grows like a forest full of living things full of teeming life and we thank you for inviting us to be a part of that kingdom in Jesus name everybody said amen amen you may be seated well I want to uh, share something with you that maybe you have yeah don't lift it up by the top kids you can go on back Sorry, you're like, oh my gosh, come on, preacher man. Um, I want to share something with you that maybe you have experienced in your own life. I remember a particular day in my life that I, th- I think you'll relate to. I got up early, was a bit nervous a bit anxious. My palms don't usually sweat. They were sweaty. It was one of those days where, have you ever had those days where when you first step outside, it feels really good, but the longer you're out, the more you start sweating. Maybe that's 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Anybody familiar with those kind of days? It was one of those kind of days, and I wanted to get to that point in my day where I would look at my future bride and say, I do. It was my wedding day. I was excited about it. I was looking forward to it. And yet, there was a bit of nerves there. Has anybody experienced the the nerves of... It wasn't the nerves of, am I doing the right thing? It was, remember your line, remember your line. Type thing, And if you've ever spoken in front of people, you probably know any teachers in the house or whatever, you understand. Don't mess this up, right? 
Um, but it was exciting. It was fun. It was, it was a moment to be remembered as we took communion together at our wedding. We took communion together. We, we jokingly said that we were getting married no matter what because there were five pastors there. And so if one dropped and we had another one, I mean, we had literally had at least five pastors at our wedding. So it was almost like God saying, yes, you're getting hitched. Um, don't run out the door. And I remember the reception and all of the fun and all the excitement and all the joy. I remember that day, the sun was so bright, running out in the black tux and the sweat. You ever feel the sweat just slowly beginning to beat up and build and build? Now, she didn't have that because she had a white dress on. Oh, she had sweat. Okay. Well, there you go. I learned something new. So, and I get in the car, and the car was black. And the heat was beating down on the car. And, you know, black absorbs the heat. Now I'm in my black tux, and I'm sweating profusely. But, men, let's be honest. The reason that we don't care what colors they use and what flowers they use is we just want to get to the wedding night, right? Can I just, can we? <laughs> you guys, it's okay, all right? It's a, part of, it's, it's a part of God designed it. It was his idea. It's okay, all right? In the confines of marriage, it's okay. It was his idea, you know? And um, the Bible calls that moment of your wedding night, it calls it a covenant, that act, that moment, some of you should have been with us a few, year, a few years ago when we did a six-week series on physical intimacy in marriage and what the Bible says about physical intimacy. And some of you are thinking, you spent six weeks on sex? Yes, because it's in the Bible and it was God's idea, right? And so we need to understand what we know about it and what the God says about it versus what the world is going to tell you, right? Well, the Bible calls marriage a covenant. And today and next week, we're just going to take a quick two-week series on a covenant. And the Bible calls marriage a covenant. And we'll dive back into this idea of marriage as a covenant in a few minutes. But there's another covenant. When we talk about covenant, there's another example of a covenant. Now, I want to lay out real clear what a covenant is. Because in our culture today, we don't get covenant, not in the biblical sense. We have this word promise. Anybody familiar with promise, right? I promise to. How many, how many of you have had somebody tell you, uh, tell you that they promise you, but they don't do it? Let me see your hands. I promise, right? I promise. I promise this time, right? I promise this time. Fool me once, right? Shame on me. Fool me twice. Shame on you. Right, that's it. We're done. In fact, Jesus even gave that example, right? Uh, the parable of the master who owned a vineyard, and he said, you know, I sent a servant in to try to bail you out, and you sent them away. I sent another servant in to try to bail you out, and you sent them away. And the master says, okay, this time I'll send my son with a different approach. And the Bible says that the third time, they not only beat the son, but they killed him. Right? 
And so we see this in Scripture that God says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, you've got one more chance, one more chance, one more chance. And at some point, God says enough. And so when we give our word, when we give our word, it's supposed to be binding. But in our culture today, people give their word and give their word and give their word, and then they turn around and leave. Then we have, in our culture, we have a contract. Now, that contract is a little more binding because why? Well, it's a legal document, right? It's a legal document. And if you back out, then X, Y, Z is probable. You guys with me? But then a covenant goes beyond legality. Covenant is life bonding. I'm bonding for life. This is it, right? And that's what we're talking about, life bonding, life's bonding together. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, you can turn there, or it'll be on the screen. Now, the, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of eternal covenant... This is an eternal covenant. Do you, do you notice the seriousness here of covenant? It's not a month. It's not as long as the contract is good. It's eternal. It's eternal. And what covenant is he talking about? He's talking about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus through the blood of through the shed blood of Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Right? We often sometimes refer to pastors as shepherds, but there is a great shepherd to which all shepherds answer. So which the pastor then one day will be held accountable before God. How did you care for your sheep? How did you grow them? How did you mature them? How did your, how did your sheep understand that when they're in the pen, they're no longer the one. They need to go out and get one, right? And so we understand this idea of covenant that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. It's a very serious thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. Jesus says in Mark 14, verse 24, the night of the Passover before his crucifixion, this is my blood of, what's the word? Covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. This is my blood of the covenant. This is one of the things that as we talk about covenant today and next week, in Scripture we find out that blood is always shed at a covenant. Blood must be shed at a covenant for it to be real. And so Jesus says that when we take communion, that it is the blood of his covenant, that it is a representation of the blood that was spilled out for an eternal covenant. You can find the, the shedding of blood in a new covenant in Matthew 26, 28, Luke 22, verse 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, Hebrews 9, 18. I know some of you are writing down, so I'll try to go a little slower. And then Hebrews 10, 29, Matthew 26, 28, Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, Hebrews 9, 18, and Hebrews 10, 29. And there are several more. But a covenant was a shedding of a blood upon entering a binding agreement. It means that I agree so much with this and I'm so on board with this 
that I'm willing to shed my blood right out of the gate. We're talking about something bigger than a, con- than a legal contract. It's literally shedding of life. Now, there were four ways that a covenant could exist in Scripture or during biblical times. There were four ways that a covenant could exist. Number one, there was the cutting of the palm. You would cut the palm, and whoever you're entering into covenant with would cut their palm, and you would shake hands, and the blood would intermingle, and their blood would get into your veins, and their blood would get into your veins. In fact, this is where the concept... How many of you have done a business deal on a handshake? That comes from the Bible. That is a biblical... Because all we've done is remove the cutting of the palm, but we're doing a handshake. And so that is, a, that is a, actually a biblical thing. When we do a business deal on a handshake, it's to say, we're going into this together. We're going to do this. And so over the course of time, what happens is we begin to remove this cutting of the palm, and they simply shook hands. And so that is one form of a covenant. The second form is cutting of the palm, letting it drip into a wine, into wine and then drinking the wine. And each of us drinking each other's blood in wine. Now, I know that sounds horribly gross and you'll be glad to know that in the Old Testament that this is forbidden. That that Jews were not supposed to do this. This was forbidden, but it was some it was a way a covenant was done outside of scripture. Uh, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 through 4, it's forbidden. In Leviticus 17, 10 through 11, this is forbidden. But when Jesus holds up a cup and suddenly says, this is my blood, the Jewish people would have fully understood what was going on. That it's not really blood. And so for those people that believe in transubstantiation, which is a belief that when I take communion, as I drink it and as it goes down, it literally, literally turns into blood. It's called transubstantiation, right? And we don't believe that. That's not something that we believe. We believe that the, the juice or the wine is a representation, that Jesus lifting that cup up, that represents the covenant that we enter into with Jesus. The, the third way is to cut, cut your wrist, and then to do this and mingle the blood would be a third. And Soretta's looking at me like, what in the world? Right? And so you would, you would mingle the blood that way. The fourth one that we see throughout Scripture, and this is the fourth and final way that a covenant would exist, an animal's blood would be substituted for a human's blood. So when you look at Scripture and you look at the sacrifice of animals in the temple, it is a type and a shadow of what's to come. The shedding of the lamb's blood, right? Of Jesus on the cross, the shedding of the blood. It was a, it was a type and a shadow so that when the blood was spilled, it was a covenant. Why? Why blood in a covenant? Because the Bible tells us that life is in the blood. Life is in the blood, Genesis 9, 3 and 4, Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11. Just a a few examples, Genesis 9, 3 and 4, Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11. Life is in the blood, and what you're saying is, I'm willing to to share my life with your life. Whatever I have is yours, and whatever you have is mine. That we're, we're We're sharing that life together. 
In Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and verse 17, in this story, we see that God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a co- we're going to make a covenant. We're going to make a covenant together. And so Abraham lays out a cow, a ram, a goat, a dove, and a pigeon. And he spills their blood. Now God says that we're going to make a covenant. Abraham, that through you, all the nations will be blessed. I will redeem the world through you. He, he makes all of these, what we would call promises, until the blood is spilled. And what would happen is they would spill the blood. They would split the goat and the cow in half. And all of that blood would represent the human blood that was not spilled. So we would stand in substitute. But something happened with this covenant. Typically when they would do this, when you would do this with someone, you would walk through the blood together, meaning that you both would hold up your end of the deal. But in this instance, because God knew that humanity could not keep up their end of the deal, God at night wakes Abraham up after this is split and the blood is on the ground, and God allows Abraham to see God himself walking through the blood. To say, listen, the covenant of redeeming all of humanity through, through your lineage and bringing my lost creation back to myself is going to be through me. I'm going to do this because I know humanity can't do it. There are some things in your life that only God can do. And you need to be okay with that. And we need to understand that humans are flawed. Humans, humans like what we like. We don't want to move or to change. And so sometimes God has to step in and say, enough is enough, I will take care of this. And sometimes we have to trust that when God says enough is enough, enough is enough, right? That God's going to do some things that when your back is up against the wall, you don't see a way out, but God's going to provide. You know in your own life, God has provided multiple times, right? Because you're his child. And if you've entered covenant with him, then through the blood of Jesus on the cross, the covenant to keep you and to watch over you is on him. Your role is to stay with him. Right? To walk with him. To develop that relationship with him. To to grow in the grace of God and to grow in the power of the Holy Spirit and operation in your life. So when God says, move, you move. When God says turn right, you turn right. When God says turn left, you turn left. When God says go forward, you go forward. And you trust that in that covenant with God, because he spilt his own blood for you and I, that as we walk into that, he's saying, hey, there's some things that only I can do. Trust me. And you walk in it. And you don't know where it's going. You're like Moses with, and the Israelites, right, facing the sea, but the army closing in on, closing in on your backside. You're like David, where you walk out and, hey, I'm just, bringing, I'm just bringing lunch to my brothers. Who is this giant out here that's blaspheming, blaspheming our God and what's going on? And while everybody else around you is scared stiff, suddenly something inside of you rises up and says, enough is enough. This isn't going on anymore, and I'm going to stand up and do what I need to do. Right? And when God tells you that, and you stand up and do it, and you're like, I don't know how this works, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to stand up, put the rock in my sling, and trust God. It wasn't the stone that killed Goliath. The stone simply knocked Goliath out. The Bible tells us that David took Goliath's sword and chopped off his head and held it up. 
And the Philistines took off running. Because this scrawny teenage boy just beat our number one warrior. Right? And then David goes back to Saul and says, was this your problem? (laughs) When you walk in covenant with God and God says, I'm willing to spill my blood for you, then when we walk with God, we trust God. No matter the circumstance, no matter what, because God will do things that only God can do. Turn to your neighbor and say, has God done it? Turn to your other neighbor and say, yes, he will. He will. If you feel out of place or you feel like you're disjointed, just wait. There's coming a time where God's going to put you in the right position. And you might be crying, win, Lord, win, Lord, win, Lord. And God's like, just trust me. His timing is perfect. His plans are perfect. He's never early and he's never late. And sometimes that just makes us a little nervous. Because we think it's late. And God says, no, I'm not late. I sit outside of time. I'll come in and move when I'm ready to move. We hold on in trust. That's part of a covenant. Saying that my life is in your life, and your life is in my life, and we're going to get through this together, that we're going to walk this out. In Malachi chapter 2, this go, going back to this idea of marriage, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, it says, you ask why it is, because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Do you remember when I talked about the spilling of blood and there has to be a parting and a going through for a covenant to exist? All right, all the kids are out of here. Let's get R-rated for a minute. What happens on the wedding night? There's a parting and there's a going through and there's a spilling of blood. It's a covenant. There's a, it's a covenant. That two lives are coming together as one, as the Bible said. Marriage is a covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32, it tells us again that marriage is a covenant. Now, what does that mean? In marriage, there's a leader, right? God says the man is the head of the home. And while both are equal and bringing something to the table... At the end of the day, God is holding the husband responsible for how he leads his family. There has to be a head. Otherwise, you have chaos and everybody doing their own thing. It's never made any more clearer than when Lynn planned something one night and I go plan something else for the same night and the kids are doing this over there and I'm like, wait, I thought we were, no, I thought you said, no, we aren't on the same page anymore. Because you want to do it that way, and I want to do it this way. There has to be a head with one vision and one direction. Not the boy band. All right? But one direction. Because otherwise you have a schizophrenic marriage and a schizophrenic family. And so there has to be one vision and one head moving in one direction. Nobody likes a schizophrenic person or a schizophrenic marriage. They don't last. You can't can't operate under that. And so if you ask me, hey, what are you doing some night? You know what's going to happen? I'm going to pull up my phone. I'm going to pull up our shared calendar. And I'm going to go, hmm, 
Don't see anything going on. Okay, I think so, but let me call and make sure that she doesn't already have something else planned, that she's not involved in another conversation right now. Right? So what happens when I sit down and do the budget? When I sit down and do the budget, now just because I handle the money in the house doesn't mean I'm the head. It might be that she's better gifted at money. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm responsible as the head of having one vision for the family going one direction. Again, not the boy band. And so I will do the budget, take it to her, and go, what am I overlooking? What am I missing? Let's work together. Right? Where do I yield to her? I yield to her when it comes to, even though I'm the head, right? Because great leaders know when to follow and when to lead. Great leaders know when to follow and when to lead. So I say, you know what? You've got a master's degree in child development and classroom and children. We've talked about her going on to get her doctorate in child development and child psychology and understanding children. That's probably not going to happen, but we've talked about it. So when we start talking about disciplining the kids and how do we discipline and how do we handle this, well, you know what? (laughs) You spent six or seven years going to understand them. (laughs) I'm dad. This is the way it is. Well, if you handle it like this, okay, I get you, right? I yield because she has a skill set there that I don't have. I could go in and say, I'm the head of the home, and I'm the leader, and this is the way it's going to be. I could because I have that right. I have that ability, but I don't. And I yield, and I say, okay, well, if that's what you're thinking, okay, then, yeah, let's, let's try that, right? Let's do that. But it's a covenant. It's a marriage. It's a coming together, but there still has to be a lead. There still has to be a head. Now, understand this, that the Bible tells us, and maybe you're sitting here today, maybe you're, maybe you're single, and you're like, okay, well, it's covenant, and it doesn't apply to me. Marriage doesn't apply to me. I'm single, and what you're talking about, I get it. I might be married someday. I want you to understand something. If the Bible is very clear as well that some people will never get married. That singleness is a blessing. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, just listen to this, out of the message translation, sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of, of the single life to some and the gift of the married life to others. That Paul says, listen, if I'm, sometimes people are just going to be single. They have no desire to get married. And that's okay. He says being single is a gift and so is marriage a gift. The church has for so long been like, well, if you're not married... You know, you're out, of, you're out of the will of God. That's not true. Paul says right there. He says being single is a gift. Do you know why? Here's, here's what I honestly believe why being single is a gift. You can probably do more for the kingdom of God, and you're mo- more mobile than someone who's married and got kids and has, has to kind of take root a little bit to grow that family. But in the kingdom of God, if you're like Paul and you're single and you can travel and you can move and you do things for the kingdom of God, you're not weighted down by a spouse. Please hear that correctly, right? I'm not saying because you're married, you're weighted down. But Paul says there are those who will be single and those who will be married and both are gifts. Jesus even said in Matthew 19, 12, that there will be those who live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
There will be those that live as eunuchs, people without a sex drive. That they're just, they, they, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, they are not getting married. They are moving forward in the kingdom of heaven. Being single is okay and being married is okay. But society tells us you have to have a partner and you have to find somebody. You have to, no, you know what I have found for most people? When they learn to be okay being single, when they're used to being single, and some of you are smirking because you know this is true because it's happened to you. When you get to the point where you're okay with being single, it's just God and I and I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. That's typically when your spouse is found. It wasn't my life. It wasn't my wife's life. And I've talked to countless other people that I'm okay with God and me. It works. I'll do whatever God wants me to do, and I'll do it single if this is his plan for my life. And I'm okay with that. So some people just don't enter marriage. But again, marriage is a covenant. It's, a, it's, a, it's beyond a promise. It's beyond a legal contract. Marriage is spiritual. It is spiritual. It is a covenant between one another. It's a mingling of two lives, not just stuff. You have the rights to my stuff. I have the rights to your stuff. But it's no longer your stuff and my stuff. It's our stuff. It's all together. And even in that, though, there has to be a lead. But the idea is is if I prosper, you prosper. If I go poor, you go poor. It also means that children in marriage... Children who aren't born yet are going to come into that covenant. It means that if we go into a covenant together in Scripture, if we were to go into covenant together and cut our wrists or our palms and shake hands and the lifeblood mingles, it means that my children are your children, your children are my children. Everything that we have is shared. And it goes on for generation after generation after generation because the blood is now in the blood. This is a serious, serious business. That means that families, assets, liabilities, names, reputations are all contained in the blood of covenant. So what do you think happens when you say, Jesus, Jesus, I want to enter into covenant with you. Then all of his stuff becomes your stuff and all of your stuff becomes his stuff. All of his life becomes your life and all of your life becomes his life. His status becomes your status and your status becomes his status. You are now one. It means that he had everything to lose and you had everything to gain. And you exchange that. And he says, I'm willing to lose it all for you. And so when we sing about reckless love, from our standpoint, having nothing to give to God other than our life, it seems pretty reckless that you would leave heaven, leave all of this, Allow yourself to be tortured on a cross as a rebel, speaking of another kingdom coming, it seems reckless to us. It seems like silliness to us. But it should be exciting. For the next few minutes and then next week, we're going to take a look at a covenant relationship a covenant partnership, as we, as we understand it, has to first take part in the soul of a person. Covenant partnership first starts in the soul of a person. You have to decide, I want to enter into partnership, into covenant with this person. 
You don't just <laughs> slit your wrist, make yourself bleed, and then shake hands and let the blood mingle for a while. Because it wasn't like a quick handshake. It was a holding of the hands until the blood mingled and got in each other's veins. Now, some of you that are nurses and work in the medical field are freaking out over this. <laughs> right? I guess so. Did you all, like, take melatonin? I'm just ask, asking for a friend. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. I want you to notice something in these verses between Jonathan and David. It says that Jonathan and David, they loved each other as they loved themselves. Now, some people, and I've met them and talked with them and even had some professors at universities that will say, well, this, was, this relationship was a little more than just being friends, if you understand what I mean. But then if you really read Scripture, you understand it's not. You ever had that best friend that you just, like, you had to come out of the same womb? Like, we're just, we think alike, we act alike, we love one another. And they entered into covenant. And so the first thing is that what we need to understand is that the covenant starts in the soul, on the same page, go in the same direction. You can only love someone else to the extent at which you love yourself. Right? What did Jesus say? Love your neighbor as you what? Hate yourself? No. The contingence upon loving your neighbor is loving yourself. And appreciating your gifts and your callings and your talents. And loving your neighbor. And so when David cut his palm, and Jonathan cut his palm, and they shook hands, and they let that blood, and they held there, held that there, and they allowed the blood to mingle. It means that Jonathan mingled his wealth as the prince of Israel with the poverty of David. It means that Jonathan mingled his early death with with David's long life. It means Jonathan mingled his royalty with David's peasant status. It means that a prince mixed with a shepherd. Anybody see a covenant between us and Jesus here? That our poverty, that our lowliness, Jesus says, let's mix, let's mix blood. Let's go into covenant together. I'm going to give you my royalty as the prince of peace. And because humanity is in poverty spiritually, I'll take on your burdens. I'll take on your stress. I'll take on your anxiety. I'll take on your worry. All I need you to do is begin to believe in me and put your life in me and trust me. And then I will give you all of this. That's what he offers us. And I love verse 4 because it doesn't stop with the blood. Can you put verse 4 up there? Jonathan took off his robe in closing. Jonathan took off the robe as he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic 
and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Just imagine with me, if you will, Jonathan and David enter into a covenant where they mix the blood, but they, they want everybody to know that they're in covenant together. Now, in our days, coats don't really mean anything. But back then, coats were a symbol of status. And here's the prince of Israel, who's next in line to be king. You can only imagine what his coat looks like. And he takes it off, and he says, David, it's yours. Now, David's coat and his outer garment probably stunk like sheep, probably had stuff, maybe, you know, like blood stains from sheep or, you know, sheep snot on it. I don't know. And he takes that off and he goes, Jonathan, it's yours. It's a beautiful picture of us and Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a robe of righteousness and I'll take on your coat of shame and guilt. You take on my peace. You take on my righteousness. And let's enter into covenant together. And it's not, doesn't just stop there. <laughs> he, he gave him his tunic underneath his coat. Jonathan handed David his sword, his weapon, his ability to defend himself. He goes, we're going into this covenant together. And if you read the story, you know who the leader was in this covenant? It wasn't the prince Jonathan. It was David. And Jonathan said, here's my sword. Did Jesus not give us his word? Right? The sword of the spirit. Jonathan gives David his bow. And he goes, hey, I understand that if you have a sword and a bow... You need a belt because the belt would hold both. The belt had clips for both. And so he could hold both and his hands still be free. Jonathan goes, listen, my weapons aren't going to do you any good if you can't carry them. Does it say anywhere in there that David had anything to give to Jonathan? No. It's the prince saying, I'm giving you everything I've got. And we know from Scripture that David would become the next king. And through David's lineage, Jesus would come. Here's what I want to say to you today. If you're here this morning and you've never allowed Jesus to put on you his robe of righteousness, you've never allowed the Prince of Peace to put his arms around you and to say, let's march into covenant together for all of eternity. Let's be together. I want to invite you this morning to either see me at the back or come forward. Let's stand up. If I can get Steve to come up here and if I can get Linda Bracken to come up here and as we close out in song, if you're here this morning, you're like, you know what? I want to accept what Jesus has done for me. I want to put on his robe of righteousness and drop my robe of stinky poverty of humanity. 
so that I can begin to walk with Jesus. If you want to enter into that eternal covenant with Jesus to say, I'm sorry, forgive me of what I've done. I want to invite you this morning to do that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence here today. Lord, as we walk out these doors and enjoy this weekend, Lord, may we always keep at the forefront of our mind the covenant that we have entered into with you. Lord, we thank you that just like Jonathan put his coat of royalty around David, that you have put your robe of righteousness around us and that you love us as the Prince of Peace. And may your peace rule our spirits and our minds. Until next week, Lord, you bring us back all safely. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. You guys have an awesome, awesome week.